Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This week uh, we are going to be covering the announcements from Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, WWDC, which took place earlier this week on Monday. Uh, I was there in person, Aaron watched remotely and both of us took a ton of notes and have kind of been reading around stuff afterwards. Uh, there's so much to cover and we debated how best to cover it, but here's what we've decided to do today and we'll follow up next week with at least some spillover. It may, may or may not be the whole episode, but here's a, an outline for today. We're going to talk first of all about the the structure of the event and the sort of presentation elements of things, kind of... Uh, how each thing was covered and, and how we felt that was different from last year and an improvement on last year. We'll then talk about a few themes that we pulled out. So rather than going through specific products or platforms or anything like that, uh, we're going to talk about themes instead. So our first theme will be essentially openness or all the ways in which Apple's kind of loosening its control over various elements of its platforms. Uh, the second one will be uh, pushing back on the narrative about Apple being behind in AI and deep learning. Uh, the third will be uh, we were talking about this beforehand. Aaron suggested we just call this segment "Finally," uh, in a tribute to John Gruber and a million headlines about Apple. Uh, but all the things that we feel like should have happened a long time ago and finally did this time around. And then the fourth element will be uh, kind of reinforcing the ecosystem. So all the stuff that Apple's doing to reinforce the sense that uh, life is better when you use more than one of its devices, and and the ways in which Apple is taking things that exist on one of its devices or platforms and porting those to others. So there'll be a variety of things to talk about there. So. Uh, that's kind of the outline for today. That's kind of what we'll go through. As I say, there will be some spillover. There will certainly be things we don't cover today. And hopefully we'll wrap those up next week and may or may not take the whole episode to do that. So let's kick off by talking about the, the presentation and the structure. Um, I Shortly before this year's event, I kind of spent some time looking at the last three years' WWDC keynotes and just uh, looking at kind of how the time was spent between the different elements especially knowing that uh, we were going to have, say, tvOS to cover this year, which wasn't covered, obviously, in previous years. It was going to be tough to squeeze it all in, and I was really curious whether we'd see a spillover as we did last year, whether we'd see the slightly sort of manic and overwhelming uh, feel that we had last year as well, where it felt like the time was poorly spent and things were a little rushed. And overall, my sense was that the, the time was actually managed quite well, and I felt like there were two elements of that. One was that Apple decided to kind of hit the high notes without going into lots of detail on, on certain things. And so they hit the highlights, but didn't go in huge amounts of detail that allowed them to say a lot without uh, feeling too overwhelming. I think the other thing they did really well was kind of managing the structure. So right from the beginning, they talked about four platforms uh, in Tim Cook's remarks at the beginning with several of the platforms, especially I'm thinking of uh, Mac OS and iOS, they kind of said, here are the... Uh, seven things and that became eight things on the Mac that are new and different and with iOS here are the 10 things and so there was a sense of structure it was almost like a table of contents which I felt helped things to kind of slot into place and meant you never felt kind of lost about where you were in the narrative and so in some ways it was the kind of classic you know tell them what you're going to tell them tell them and then tell them what you told them sort of thing uh, but I felt that was an improvement on last year what about you Aaron? No I really agree I, this one just felt more much more purposeful and focused um, I was kind of amazed at how much ground they actually did cover in the two hours, which I think is has a lot to do with the fact that they took it in such a structured approach. I mean, I, I was amazed at how quickly they were going through the material too. It was it, so in a keynote that was just over two hours, they covered uh, let's see, Watch OS, TV OS, and Mac OS in the first fifty minutes, which meant iOS made up that almost all of that second hour. And uh, it was kind of striking to me how fast they moved. I didn't expect the iOS updates to be as big as they were. That was, I think, one of the biggest surprises for me mm -hmm. with the keynote. But but even then, you know, there were there were some I think keynote worthy items that came out later. Yeah. That uh, they didn't have time for because they had so much ground to cover. Yeah, and of course the App Store stuff that was announced last week, which we talked about last right. week, but got out some of the stuff ahead of time even you know um and pretty newsworthy stuff otherwise um but kind of got that out beforehand yeah i was interesting in the breakdown i did um ios you know three years ago was 45 minutes two years ago was an hour pretty much dead on last year was 57 minutes this year was 54 minutes i'm excluding all the swift stuff because that was really separate from that um so it's pretty much an hour fairly consistently for the last three years for ios uh, mac os 
has been kind of squeezed down over time of 31 minutes three years ago, 34 minutes two years ago, 18 minutes last year and 14 minutes this year. Um, you know, that's been slowly squeezed down to make room for some of the other stuff. You know, Watch OS was 18 last year and 19 this year. TV OS was eight minutes this year. The Swift stuff was 10 minutes two years ago. Didn't get a lot of attention last year, but 11 minutes this time around. And of course, last time around, you had 26 minutes on Apple Music alone. Uh, and nothing, you know, on that as a separate category, a few minutes, obviously, in the context of iOS, including, frankly, one of the most entertaining parts of the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, with Bozema St. John, who did a great she job. She's awesome. <laughs> um, she's fantastic. Um, but, uh, yeah, very interesting to see kind of how they spread the time between those things. So lots of stuff to cover now, uh, and yet still kind of hit the highlights, as I say, in the, in the course of two hours and finished pretty much on time. You know, I, from everything I've read about the way Apple manages these keynotes, uh, my impression is that they usually have about twice the amount of material, and then they do just dozens of rehearsals and tons of cutting. Mm-hmm. It really makes me wonder what they had rehearsed and what they cut. Yeah. Um, you know, to winnow it down to what, in the end, is still a pretty long speech, mm-hmm. a, a pretty long talk. I mean, I, I realize yeah. not everybody, it wasn't one person speaking the whole time like it was back in the days of Steve Jobs, but. Still, two hours is a long time to keep an audience in a room yeah. and uh, for something like this. And I thought they did a great job keeping it moving along relatively rapidly, you know, not too much navel-gazing, which they sometimes mm-hmm. do in moments like these. Like, yeah. isn't this the most amazing feature you've ever seen? Kind of a thing <laughs> when the crowd is silent, so they're trying to, like, drum up applause. I thought they did a good job of not getting hung up. Yeah, no, it's interesting, actually. Crowd response. Almost the opposite of that. There were a couple of points where I really sensed that Craig Federighi, in particular, I think of a moment in my mind when he seemed ready to kind of plow on through to the next thing on his list, and and the crowd kind of clapped, and he had to kind of almost talk through the applause. You know, it was it was a very clear sense of I have a mission. I have to get to the end of this, and I, I want to keep going, and, and I can't stop to wait for people to stop clapping. So that, yeah, that's, that's the fruit of re- rehearsing over and over and over again, yeah. and having a time budget assigned right. to you. Right. Absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to talk about these themes that I mentioned up front. And so the first of these themes is, is I call the openness, but really it's about loosening of controls. And there's a couple of versions of that. There's, there's the uh, giving developers access to things they haven't had before, but there's also kind of loosening some of the control over things that Apple has um, not allowed you to change in the OS before as well. And so three specific things that I think are, are part of this and sort of indicative of it. Uh, the biggest single one by far is the new extensions. So the opening up of Siri and iMessage and Maps to developers um, the second is the fact that you can now delete Apple's built-in applications, and you can't yet do that with all of them. Uh, it's supposedly going to be coming in a later beta, but um, you can now quote-unquote delete those apps, and we can talk about what that actually means in practice. And the third example of that was uh, that VoIP apps can now basically t- present on the lock screen much the same way that um, the native dialer and phone application do. So those are some examples of that. But I, I think we'd like to spend probably quite a few minutes talking about the, the new uh, Siri iMessage and Maps extensions in particular. Aaron, what was your take on all of that? Um, you know, I had a little scenario in my head from uh, Federe's, uh demo of this part. It's just imagining how cool it will be to pull up Maps, you know, search for a restaurant you want, you know, because you're looking at, say, you know, a dozen or so restaurants in the area, you pick one and then you can place a takeout order right there. I I mean, that was, that was a really cool demo when he bought the 5,000, um, was it a deconstructed samosa? Is that what it was? (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) But I mean, the point is, is that was a really powerful demonstration of what extensions within maps can do. You know, we, you and I have put a lot of focus on, on iMessage as a platform Mm -hmm. and messaging generally as a platform. But I think there's a ton of power in Maps as a platform. And the idea that uh, I, I think we're going to see a lot of new business models uh, growing out of that. That's actually one that I'm very excited about. I, I think the the, the, extens- the extensibility of iMessage is really exciting. Um, but uh, I think that's going to be more about fun than useful, which, mm-hmm. f- which you know, and I've said this before, fun is useful. But, but right. I, I think you know what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me, and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, I think, when we talked about Siri potentially opening up at that point, um, was you could get whole new categories of apps that would basically exist solely as extensions within these new applications. Like there'll still be an app icon on the home screen because that's kind of Apple's unbreakable model still at this point. Um, But 
it's become like a keyboard app where you, you maybe open it once to set up some preferences and then you never go back in behind that icon again and, and all the functionality exists elsewhere. And you can see that happening within Maps. You can see that happening with iMessage. You can see that happening within Siri now, um, you know, where some of these apps will basically just live there. And that, that means we'll get new types of apps that we haven't had before. And I think that's really interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. Well, and a good example of how this makes so much more sense, you know, the only time I'm ever using the animated GIF keyboard I installed on my phone is in iMessage. Mm. And so it makes so much more sense to just have that be an extension, uh, like an, essentially an iMessage app, than it is to have it be something that's run th runs through, you know, my whole OS, because I use the keyboard in all kinds of other situations. And quite frankly, it's really annoying when I accidentally switch over to the to the GIF keyboard because mm -hmm. it's useless to me there. It's just an annoyance. Right. And so I, I totally picture myself, you know, disabling that keyboard um, and then just installing a, a message, iMessage extension to mm -hmm. do that in any way. Yeah. I think if we're talking about this all in the context of uh, openness and, and loosening control, I think we do have to acknowledge the fact that, that the Siri opening up is still being done in a very controlled way. Um, it's only open to certain categories like messaging, uh, ride hailing, essentially, uh, and a few others. Doesn't include notably music or navigation, for example. So there's no way to say play such and such in Spotify or navigate using Google Maps. Right. Um, there has been some discussion that those things will be opened up in time, and Apple just wanted to kind of keep the range of domains pretty narrow for now, just to make it manageable and make for a better user experience. Um, but, of course, it also has the benefit that Apple doesn't completely lose control over kind of having its own apps as the default in some of those major categories where it feels like it's competitive, like music and like maps. And this is something we talked about last week. Is yeah. We actually predicted this because we talked about the, the kind of unbelievable complexity that comes from opening up Siri because of the, the difference between voice commands, which can be very ambiguous, versus tapping, which is very deliberate and focused. And uh, and it makes and we said last week, you know, we could imagine a scenario where where Apple keeps, you know, this this third party extension extensibility of Siri limited to a certain category of apps. And that it turns out to be exactly what they did. And I can see why they did it. Um, and not just because it's, uh, you know, building a hedge around some key Apple apps as services, but also because. I think they're going to be learning a ton about how developers use and hook into Siri. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it'll be a lot like how notifications have worked um, on the iPhone over the years. You mm -hmm. know, like they evolve over time. Yeah, they've evolved and gotten more complex, and developers right. have been able to do more with notifications than when they originally started. And I remember developers complained about how limited that first implementation of notifications was. Um, but, you know, look at them now, especially with what they just announced. I think the improvements they made to notifications are really exciting and, and much richer. And uh, I think the home screen is going to be uh, incredibly useful now. I'm excited about that. Yeah. No, I, I'm fascinated to try some of that. I, I did download, I've had a miserable time trying to install iOS 10 on a couple of devices here. I managed to brick two different iPhones. Uh, repeatedly, oh man, <laughs> um, trying to install it. I, I still don't know what the issue was. I finally had to switch computers and switch cables and various other things to try to uh, eliminate the error and, and finally found a way to do it over the air rather than through iTunes because it just wasn't working. But I did finally get iOS 10 in installed on an iPhone 6S. The problem is I don't have 3D Touch on there and so uh, some of the clever new stuff is, is not available to me yet. And so I've played with it a bit and it seems great. Um, but it's, And of course, with a lot of the stuff, it'll only be really useful once the apps exist uh, to integrate into some of this stuff. So a lot of it's really hard to try out today anyway. But you get a sense of, you know, Apple's got a couple of pre-built-in uh, things as far as kind of stickers and so on that you can try out. The other thing that's hard to test right now is, you know, all the bubble effects and stuff like that in iMessage, which simply don't show up at the other end right now, and you have no sense that that's the case if you're sending them from iOS 10. Uh, so that's something I've been discussing with a couple of people on Twitter today is kind of how that might evolve over the next few months because once you have the public beta with millions of people running it, um, there's going to be lots of people on iOS 10 who are sending messages almost exclusively to people who are on iOS 9. Um, and... If this stuff simply doesn't work and doesn't show up at the other end, but you have no indication that that's the case, it's going to be a bit problematic, but probably a topic for another time. Um, 
anything else we want to say about this kind of these new extensions? I mean, there's a ton to say here. We obviously had a whole uh, question of the week back in episode 33 about iMessage as a platform. Kind of felt like Apple did almost everything I said they should do back then um, between, you know, opening it up and also um, with inline previews and things like that for music and, and other stuff. Um, you know, they, they fixed a lot of iMessage in my mind um, but also obviously opening it up and now turning it into a platform i think the interesting thing actually about that is whereas there are other messaging platforms out there almost all of them exist in order to monetize it in other words to create a revenue stream for the owner of the messaging app whether it's line or wechat or cacao or whatever this is how they make money uh, and apple largely isn't doing that it's, it's handing over most of those money making opportunities to third parties at least for now so things like payments that we've talked about you know you could do peer-to-peer payments with an iMessage you can now, but it will be through Square Cash and other third-party services rather than through Apple Pay. Um, ditto stickers and things like that. You know, it's all going to be third-party stuff. If those app developers decide to charge for it, and if there's an in-app purchase or whatever to do that, then obviously Apple will take its 30% cut. But Apple isn't doing this stuff, and this is this was fairly predictable, but Apple isn't doing this stuff to make money, and I think that's an important distinction. Well, and that's why we don't have an Android version of iMessage with the announcements from this week. Um, you know, I and I am... It is interesting, especially, I think it was where everybody saw Apple headed with iMessages, especially because they're making a big deal out of services now that mm-hmm. hardware sales have been slowing down. And iMessage seemed like a fantastic platform to try to monetize as a service, mm-hmm. in particular because um, because it is the most used app. I mean, th- there's a lot of loyalty to iMessage among iPhone users. It's, it is definitely their default messaging app because Apple did a lot right from the start, especially the way they integrated it with SMS. But um, so, so I think it was surprising to me that Apple didn't quite figure out a way to make this a platform that they want to spread to other devices. Um, but that may still come. I don't know. I mean, the truth is, it's it, keeping it on the iPhone is a is a fantastic hedge as far as our hardware business goes. It, mm-hmm. it waded into a comment uh, stream, and I can't remember what website in the article was related to this topic. And there were a lot of people who said, you know, iMessage is really kind of the main thing keeping me on the iPhone, which is a curious right. uh, comment to make if you think about it, because mm-hmm. there are plenty of other chat platforms out there and in the end every phone you would buy would have sms but there's just something about the way iMessage works that resonates really well with the vast majority of iphone users Mm. and uh you know and and we all who all of us who use iMessage on an iphone we all know the difference between a green bubble and a blue bubble right and uh like the, the fact that you know Blue bubbles don't get broken up if they run over 160 characters. I mean, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. You know, that alone is kind of a big annoyance that is nice uh, to, to not have to deal with with an iMessage. I think all of the changes they made, mm-hmm. I mean, iMessage is going to be so much more fun than it used to be. Yeah. And I know I keep harping on this, but fun is useful. And I think they're, they're really, they've, they've taken the thing where they recognize they have a lot of loyalty and they've added a bunch to it that's just going to even more deeply entrench that. And when you have competition from all the other chat apps out there that are growing in in global penetration, um, Apple did a really good job of sort of buttressing, um, you know, their defenses of, uh, against all these other apps to hold on to their iMessage users. Right. And therefore their iPhone owners. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to just briefly cover two other aspects that I mentioned up front. One is this deleting, quote unquote, the pre-installed apps. And in and of itself, that's not increased openness because you can't yet set alternative defaults for those applications. But if there are those apps that you don't use, you can now remove them from your home screen. And that's actually all you're really doing because uh, apparently all the resources behind those apps still stay on your device until you decide to, quote unquote, reinstall them. Um, and so, uh, but it's a way of, you know, getting rid of that folder of stuff that you never use that I think we all have. And even, you know, if you do a fresh install of iOS, you even get a folder called extras that, uh, is full of that stuff. So, uh, Apple seems to recognize that and now gives you the option of removing some of that stuff. The way that Apple deals with some of these things being missing now is a little inelegant still at the moment. So if you don't have a mail app anymore, then anytime you click on a mail to link, it, it kind of throws up an error message and similar things happen for other apps that are kind of necessary for different functions. There are also some apps that you can't yet delete and apparently that's going to change over time. But um, it's still the case right now. But it's just another sign that Apple's getting more flexible on some of this stuff and, and listening to users as well and responding to uh, what they want. 
Yeah, I don't think most are even going to bother, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a there is a vocal group of people that have been complaining about this for years, but I mean, it, it's really I, I don't have such a tidy home screen on my iPhone mm -hmm. or iPad that those extra apps become anything close to an annoyance. You know, I think they're on like the third page of a utilities folder somewhere right. that I never look at. And so I, I, I think what's more problematic is for, for users is the way the defaults uh, are baked in, like tapping on a mail to link brings up mail instead of your preferred email right. client. Um, the same with the web browsers. I mean, there are a lot of iPhone users that, that use Chrome on the, you know, on their iOS device, but uh, you know, I'm sure that there are still going to be problems where there's sort of default behavior with Safari. So it, it'll be, uh, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see how much that stuff changes because that's going to be the real measure of Apple's openness is whether or not these default apps give up the, the, the integration that they, you know, that integration advantage that they enjoy. Yeah, and I can't see that happening just yet, but it'll be interesting to yeah, see. We'll certainly either. be part of this pattern, but we'll see what happens. And, and given what we were saying about Siri and the limitations to that, we'll see how long that lasts too. The third one, and this is really just a symbolic one. It's not a big deal for most people, but you know, if you think back a few years to when Google Voice launched on Android and tried to launch on iOS, Apple blocked it. And one of the reasons was that Google Voice took over well, it didn't take over, but replicated the, the native dialer to some extent. It still looked pretty different, frankly. But Apple's excuse for not approving it in the App Store was that it mimicked the native dialer too much and, and had a prohibition on apps mimicking native functionality, and so it banned it. It took a while, and obviously, eventually, the Google Voice app ended up in the iPhone App Store and hasn't really done very well since. But uh, at the time, it seemed like it could be quite important. Well, fast forward to this year's WWDC, and all of a sudden, one of the things Apple's announcing on stage is that Skype and other VoIP apps, when you get an incoming call, it can now show up on your lock screen as if it were an incoming voice call through FaceTime or through the phone app. So fascinating change there. As I say, not enormously significant at this point, but uh, just symbolically, what a change in Apple's attitude to some of this stuff. It really reflects the change in the entire mobile industry. I mean, nobody pays for minutes anymore. Everybody pays for data. And back when Apple was much more protective, like in the days of Google Voice, uh, people were still paying for minutes. And so I, I think it, I think it has a lot to do with that. You know, I, I think uh, you know the the mobile the mobile network operators they don't really care anymore about sort of what voice app you're using to talk to people. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that I think there's a lot of that going on too. In fact, yeah. in the early days with the iPhone and AT and T, didn't Apple get a cut of every iPhone user's payment to AT and T? It seems like I remember that being the case. Where yeah, there were well, there was some interesting sort of financial stuff, and obviously everybody was under NDAs, and so it was never one hundred percent clear kind of how things were going. But yeah, um, there were some interesting sort of financial goings on back then. Yeah. Anyway, that's just me speculating. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, every mobile network operator now is selling data, and so mm -hmm. they don't care if you're using, you know, Skype right. or WhatsApp to do voice calls. Yeah, and especially here in the U.S., basically everybody's on an unlimited calling plan anyway, so right. losing voice minutes isn't actually that significant. Right. Um, just one other thing, I mean, another th theme within a theme here with this openness, this isn't something that suddenly happened this year. So you had keyboards... Uh, and content blockers in previous versions of iOS it was the first sort of extensions in this model, and, and now we're building on that. Um, there's been an increasing openness over the last few years, and this is this is another incremental step in that. This is a way that Apple tends to build to new things as they do it step by step. But um, it's interesting to see that this is building now over time, and I think took a fairly significant step forward this time around. Um, so the second thing we wanted to cover was uh, before WWDC, there was a lot of talk, especially following the other companies' developer events, so Facebook, Microsoft, and Google's events, about Apple being behind in artificial intelligence and deep learning and so on. And, and my response to that is, hang on a second, right now we're comparing everybody else's 2016 version of their stuff to Apple's 2015 version. Let's wait and see what they announce. Uh, and at the same time said Apple really needed to kind of address this stuff during WWDC kind of head on. And uh, I felt that that was a big theme, um, pushing back on that narrative about being behind. I think you saw it in Siri, you saw it in Photos, you saw it in QuickType. Uh, you saw it to some extent in this talk about 
differential privacy, which is Apple's approach to aggregating data and yet preserving privacy in the process. So those are some of the things that we'll talk about under all this. But but first off, Siri, which obviously we've talked about already a little bit, but uh, Aaron, what was your take on that side of this? Well, it seemed like there were some hints of Siri's new abilities on the, the Mac, actually, because when yeah. they introduced Siri on the Mac, they showed some things that 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 indicated that Siri was going to be much more context aware than than we've been used to up to this point. I mean, you could give Siri a command and then try to build off that command. And if you don't have enough details, Siri kind of starts from scratch. And there were a few times uh, in the keynote when Craig Federighi was demonstrating Siri on the Mac where he made reference to, I wish I had looked up the exact moment, but he made reference to a previous command mm-hmm in a way that I don't think works today on yeah. like the current Im- implementation of Siri. And so I, I'm excited about Siri having a deeper um, context awareness um, because uh, that's what it's going to take for these voice assistants to be really, truly useful. Yeah, I, I was that struck me as well. And I was surprised we didn't see it on the iPhone. And, and obviously the, the iOS 10 stuff is under NDA, so... Um, you have to be careful what you say, but I can't see evidence of it yet in Siri on iOS. And so I'm curious to see if that's a Mac only thing, if it only applies to certain domains, because the search that Craig Federighi did on stage in the Mac Siri demo was about looking for a file. So he had a first search term, and I can't remember what it was exactly, but look at this, look for this kind of file, and then said, only the ones Phil shared with me or whatever it was. Um, and so then it kind of narrowed the list. And so, um, there isn't an, obviously an equivalent of that search on iOS, but I'm curious to see whether it only applies to certain domains. Like I tried a search with movie times earlier, sort of tell me which movies are playing and then said kind of which ones are playing near me and it said, great question and kind of left it at that. <laughs> so, <I was> saying, <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. Some things never change. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it uh, as I say, there isn't yet evidence of that in the iOS uh, developer preview that I'm looking at. Um, so I'm very curious to see kind of what additional detail comes out about that over the next few months. This is something that Vocal IQ, the acquisition Apple made a while ago, was supposed to help with was kind of conversational and natural language processing and, and more complex queries. And, and there's some evidence of that, but there's not as much as I was expecting. And so I, I am very curious to see what else we see around that. But uh, clearly they mentioned... Um, what I thought was interesting is Apple has never really mentioned the terms deep learning or artificial intelligence before. They tend to just show rather than tell when it comes to this stuff, whereas Google and Facebook and Microsoft have all been kind of talking up their chops in this area. Apple doesn't tend to do that. They just kind of say, here's the product, uh, and this is what it does, and isn't it clever? Um, and there was a lot more showing than telling still this year, but there were, you know, the, the term deep learning was dropped at least twice, if not three times. Artificial intelligence was mentioned at least once, if not twice. Uh, there were a couple of other things here, like long short-term memory in, in the yeah, in the case of QuickType specifically, where it kind of uses context from a previous paragraph and not just the current sentence to put things in context. So there were some of those terms sprinkled around, and I felt like that was a an implicit sort of acknowledgement that there is this narrative out here, and Apple's not willing to just kind of sit back and say, "Sure, have at it, guys," or just step out at this point. You know, they're very keen to still compete in this area, but they'll do it by saying, "You know, this is how we're making our products better." And by the way this incorporates artificial intelligence rather than the other way around. Yeah, I am. Uh, I think we had to spend a little bit of time talking about the differential privacy thing because this is a good illustration of exactly what you're referring to, mm-hmm. where Apple is presenting sort of like high-level engineering-minded stuff, but for what was clearly intended to be a broader audience, even though they have developers in the room, you know, they know that this keynote is being watched by, you know, thousands of non-developers and hundreds right. of reporters. And uh, I thought the way that they approached differential privacy was a good example of how they try to take this sort of like, look how fancy we are kind of thing, but to translate it into this is the difference it makes for you. Right. And I'm fascinated by this approach. I mean, it, it, it is on, on the surface, and I'm not a statistician, um, although I'm next door neighbors to a few of them here at work. <laughs> But uh, it's a fascinating concept that you can introduce statistical noise at the individual level, and then when you aggregate, then the you know all of the individual data points, then the the noise sort of gets filtered out. But the idea being, if you introduce the noise at the individual level, it makes it a lot harder to identify exactly what's going on with its with each individual source of data. 
Right. It's, it's a really strikingly elegant solution. And I'm going to use a phrase that I think everybody who's written an article about differential privacy has used, the devil's in the details. And it'll be really curious to see because Apple has essentially said, yeah, we need to collect massive amounts of data to do this right. And it's almost like they were acquiescing to part of the argument that you can't do this big data analysis without big data to begin with. Right. Now, that said, they didn't. there's a lot that they didn't give in on. And, and I think this is characteristic of Apple, is quintessential Apple. The fact that, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, an information budget on every single device, right? Where it's only going to accept a certain amount of information, like private information from any single device. And once it hits that level, they're not going to pull from your device anymore. Um, and the fact that Photos is doing so much of its processing on the device itself. I mean, if I upload a picture of a horse, my iPhone, you know, a processor is the one finding that picture of the horse, not a server somewhere. Right. Um, you know, this is this is a big deal. I also think that, you know, the fact that Apple designs its own silicon and, and can 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 code for its own silicon that it's built, I think that's gotta be and I'm speculating here, but that's gotta be part of the reason Apple can pull off all the stuff that they announced in photos. The facial recognition, the image recognition, like all of that. I have a neighbor who does he's a computer science professor and his specialty is vision. And, uh, you know, a lot of his work is done on really, really powerful hardware, like teaching computers how to see things in images and videos and so forth. And, mm. and, and I think it's a pretty awesome feat that an iPhone can do a lot of this where, you know, not that many years ago it would have been something you'd laugh at. You'd need a, a whole fleet of iPhones to have the processing power to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's impressive. And I, I think Apple's unique in talking about doing this stuff on device. And obviously, the main model everywhere else is you do it on a server somewhere. Um, but that obviously requires passing a lot of data, including the actual photograph to the server. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting to see that Apple's capable of doing this. And we're going to see over the next years kind of what the limits of that approach are. Uh, but with the differential privacy thing in place, they can also pass data to the server in an anonymized, aggregated way. It might be your pictures. Uh, but it will be, you know, other information about what you're searching for and so on. And there was a great demo, I think it was in the State of the Union uh, presentation session at WWDC, uh, where they kind of talked about um, deep links. So, you know, Apple collects information about which deep links people click on, for example, when you when you pull up a spotlight search. Um, and it adds noise, uh, but when it's all added together, because the noise is basically random, um, the trends still kind of show through. And so... Uh, they can tell which deep links you click on and therefore which ones they ought to show first and that kind of thing. And so it's a great example of this. What's interesting, a couple of things about differential privacy. One is um, it's developed by a couple of people, one of whom was quoted as Aaron Roth. Um, he and, and I'm trying to remember the woman's name, there's a woman at Microsoft Research who co-wrote that paper with him. And it's Microsoft Research that came up with a lot of these ideas in the first place. Uh, so that's interesting. Obviously, that wasn't mentioned on stage. But um, the paper is interesting because it cites most of the examples of public release of data. So where companies have collected data and then released it to the public, you know, in theory, anonymized and aggregated and yet still permitted people to identify individuals based on, you know, just a few data points like uh, sex and date of birth and zip code, for example, um, obviously Apple isn't releasing in any of this data. So it's been used in a slightly different way at Apple from the way it's used elsewhere. It's not about releasing big chunks of data publicly and, and trying to scrub the data. This is about Apple's own internal use. So even though nobody outside of Apple is even going to see the data, they're still taking these very careful steps internally to make sure that nobody even inside Apple could ever identify somebody and associate particular things with them. So that's that's interesting. They're taking that step when there's a slightly different application of differential privacy. And there are all kinds of other details, and there's some pretty good articles around um, about this that kind of go into a bit more detail. The paper itself is worth a look. I've, I've read a few pages of it uh, on my way back from WWDC this week. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there in terms of the limits of it as well. And essentially, the more noise you add, the better the privacy is, but also the less useful the data becomes. And so with this approach, as with every other approach, there's a trade-off there. And at some point, you have to decide kind of where that trade-off, where the, the dividing line sits, where you're comfortable that it's private enough while still providing meaningful data. But yeah, really interesting stuff there. And obviously, it applies to photos and quick type and other stuff as well. 
Um, so our third category that we said we we're going to talk about is is this should have happened way long ago, uh, or as Aaron suggested, we call it finally. Um, there's a range of things that I kind of put in this category. Aaron had a couple more. So f- to me, kind of the way that apps work now on watchOS 3 is kind of the way they always should have worked. Um, they should have kind of launched instantly and so on. And there, there are good reasons why it didn't happen earlier, which was mostly about preserving battery life in the early days before they were confident that it would last. Uh, the single sign-on function on tvOS, that should have been there from the beginning. It was one of the biggest frustrations in all the early reviews, including mine. Uh, and then the remote app for iOS that mimics a Siri remote, again, feels like it should have been there at the beginning. And then the last one that was on my list was the Home app. Um, so HomeKit has only ever worked through Siri, which meant there was no sort of visual interface for building scenes and things like that within HomeKit. Now you can do that through the Home app, which is a much easier way to do some of this stuff. And again, just kind of wonder why Apple didn't do that in the first place. Clearly, they saw Siri as having an important role in this, and that's fine. Uh, but they should have given everybody an, a, you know, a, a visual interface as well. And it's strange that they didn't do that and good that they have done it now. But Aaron, you had some other things that you mentioned, I think, in that category. Yeah, I think Siri on the Mac is one. I mean, Siri's been around for about five years now on the iPhone and, and then on the iPad. It's strange that it took them this long to get it onto the Mac. Um, and I realize that there are a lot of different metaphors that Siri has to deal with, like, you know, understanding file management. But... It does seem like it was a really long time, especially because the reality is, is the Mac has had some version of voice control since way back in the days of of, of Mac OS nine, so pre OS ten days. Hmm. And so it it does feel a bit strange that it took them that long to get Siri onto the Mac, especially because, you know, a lot of it is still going to be really useful. Um, a lot of the stuff that's been around is stuff that people could have used on their Mac for a long time, like, for example, scheduling an appointment. Um, yeah, you know a lot of those basics that people use Siri for are are still are, are things that could have, it seems like they could have been around uh, a lot sooner. That said, I'm excited it's there now. I I think I I easily imagine myself using Siri on the Mac quite a bit. Um, and another one, I know this is where you disagree with me. I I think another thing I'd add to this category is the is the the visual rebuild that they announced for music. Um, uh, I thought uh, Bozema St. John was was fantastic. Uh, by the way, she's Ghanaian, which is, is, you know, as some of our listeners may remember, is where I just went um, about a month ago. I got back from Ghana. And, in fact, when she played that Ghanaian high life music at the end of her part of the presentation, I just I just remembered all the taxis I've been in in Ghana and how that song is was playing in every single one of them. <laughs> like this right. is what everybody listens to over there. And, and it is very upbeat, kind of infectious music. But anyway, the, the point is, I think the rebuild that they did for music felt, I, I realized it was only a year, but a year is a long time for something that, uh, you know, is essentially equivalent to, to sort of, you know, um, reconfiguring a website. I mean, you know, redesigning the visual interface of a website, I mean, especially in iTunes. That's that's almost what music entirely is, and and it felt like they took a long time when people were complaining about how confusing music was and how this is a and and when you combine that with the fact that this is a very distinct revenue source for Apple, a year felt like a really long time for them to address you know the usability complaints associated with it. Yeah, and th- and this is where I disagree. Is just that I I feel like it's a fresh coat of paint on basically the same stuff. So it, it's not a big change in terms of the actual usability of it. And I I've never been one of those that had massive issues with the usability of Apple Music on the iPhone. I think iTunes is on the desktop is a different story. But you know, if I look at the five tabs in iOS nine and Apple Music, it's for you, new, radio, connect, and my music. And now in the new version, it's library, for you, browse, radio, and search. So the tabs have changed slightly. One of them has changed names. So my music is now library. Uh, for you is there in both. Radio is there in both. Search has moved from the top right to one of those tabs. And what's disappeared is connect and new. Um, but a lot of the tabs are the same. A lot of what you find behind them is essentially the same as it was before. There's this kind of visual refresh. So it's, it's black and white and red and this sort of really uh, sort of bold, Helve- uh, looks like Helvetica. I don't know exactly which font it is. It certainly looks like Helvetica. Maybe it's um, San Francisco. I'm not the font expert. But um, at any rate, uh, same sort of look and feel as the new version of Apple News. 
Um, but it feels like it's largely cosmetic. It doesn't feel like it necessarily changes the usability. And what I was looking for with music was better recommendations, for example, and I was kind of expecting them to talk that up and how much they've improved that. I mean, it's an area where Spotify with Discover Weekly has really done well in capturing new users and, and getting great word of mouth around its recommendations over the past year or two. And I was hoping for more along those lines. I, I didn't feel like the changes in the interface were really that big. So that's where we disagree, I guess. But it'll be interesting to use it and see if it if it does feel meaningfully better. I mean, things like lyrics being available is great. Um, I've been listening to the Hamilton soundtrack quite a bit recently, and the lyrics come in handy for that because uh, some of it's pretty fast-paced and it's hard to understand exactly what's being said. Having said that, the lyrics aren't available for every song. So there was another album I tried to play earlier where the lyrics weren't available. But there are some some useful changes like that. But uh, yeah, I'm just I'm not convinced that the, the changes that are there are the ones that were really needed, and that's that's why I guess I object to it being included in our finally category. Sure, I guess I and I don't think we're that far off in our in our agreement on this. I I think a year to even make an attempt for something that was you know a subscriber rev based revenue source felt crazy long to me. Mm. So so maybe we do chalk this up to. Uh, Finally, with an asterisk. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. At least they made the effort, even yeah. though it took them a year. Yeah. I think another thing you mentioned was split view for Safari in iPad OS, in yeah. iOS on the iPad Pro. Yeah. You know, this is so last week, uh, you know, some may remember we talked about how one of the things I was hoping for were more pro level features in iOS for the iPad. Um, you know, I got an iPad Pro a couple months ago. I've been really, really happy with it, but there have been a few moments where I wish we had more. Um, I think Split View and Safari and the iCloud syncing of documents and the, the documents folder and the desktop folder, which we'll talk about in a second, I think those are those are not tiny things. I mean, they're going to be really useful things, um, but uh, I was surprised that they... So it's great that we have Split View with Safari you know, two windows, Safari, two Safari windows, but I am, but, but you can't do multiple iterations of any other app, um, in split view. And there are plenty of other apps where that would be useful. Mm. Um, so I don't know. We'll, uh, I, I, I definitely came away a little bit disappointed, but I am excited about that one because having two Safari pages side by side is going to be really handy. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I kind of overcame that one by using Safari and Chrome side by side when I was working exclusively on the iPad Pro for a while, but it certainly wasn't ideal. It would have been much easier just to do two Safari uh, screens side by side instead. So the last thing we wanted to cover, and we've got just a few minutes left, is kind of reinforcing the ecosystem. In other words, all the ways in which Apple continues to tell this story of life is better when you use multiple different Apple devices. And so some examples of that, the auto unlock feature where your MacBook can unlock itself when your your Apple Watch is close. Uh, the iCloud-based universal clipboard, so you copy something on your iPhone, it shows up in your Mac and vice versa. It could be your iPad too. Um, Apple Pay on the web uh, in Safari on the Mac based on Touch ID on your phone. Uh, Siri on the Mac, we've obviously talked about that a little bit already, but you know, taking a feature that's been prominent on every other platform already but not Mac OS and now taking it there such that Siri is now kind of a universal thing on Apple platforms. And then um, iCloud syncing for your desktop and documents folders from the Mac. Um, Aaron, any particular ones of these kind of stand out to you? Uh, I'm really excited about the universal clipboard. I'll be using that one all the time. Um, a good example of that is I use a recipe app on the iPad um, it, uh, called Paprika. It's really great um, because it can generate a recipe entry based on a web page. Mm. But if I ever come across a, uh, a recipe on my Mac, I have to through less convenient means, essentially pull up the same web page on my iPad or iPhone right. because I don't pay for the Mac version of the app. Um, you know, just being able to copy the URL and then hop over to the iPad because I don't know why I can't get the iCloud tabs working right with between the Mac and the and the uh, iPad. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are other situations where that's useful too, um, and, and so I think that one's going to be really handy. Um, I. I'm I'm conditionally excited about Apple Pay, um, yeah. it being available on the web. I think that has the potential to be really huge. I, you know, it, th there are ten to twelve steps every time you want to buy something online, mm -hmm. right? Unless it's Amazon where you've enable one click, right? Um, 
but uh, it'll be really, really great to not have to do any of that. And I realize you've had, you know, there have always been things like autofill and and other features to simplify that. But the other thing I'm really excited about is is the token-based purchasing rather than right. a retailer having a copy of my credit card. I, you yeah. know, I I've been burned a couple times by these data breaches and have had to get a new debit card number twice in one year, in fact. Mm. And so the more that that can be minimized, the better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, th- I think um, Apple, I, I, with uh, the iCloud uh, universal clipboard, I, I think it'd be fascinating to make a list of all the ways that people have managed this same task before it came along, because I'm sure right. people sent themselves iMessages, people have used iCloud tabs in Safari, perhaps, done if that, that, that works that. for them. <laughs> um, you know, there must be many others, you know, simply writing stuff down or typing it, you know, whatever it might be. I'm sure there's lots of ways. So I'm sure that that's going to be a big time saver. I mean, I was interested to see the demo included a picture. So this isn't just for text either. It's for images and things too, which will make it particularly interesting. Um, But yeah, Apple Pay on the web. I think that's interesting and and particularly important because Apple really has a tough time spreading adoption of Apple Pay for retailers in stores because it usually requires a a replacement of the point-of-sale system, which, you know, everybody was supposed to be going through anyway with the EMV shift and it hasn't necessarily happened in quite the same way that some people were predicting it would uh, retailers online though can just do a one-off upgrade and suddenly all their online interfaces have apple pay support and so you know stripe is now supporting it as well so lots of smaller retailers that use stripe for payments can now add apple pay for their online payments which is great i use it for some of my subscription services for my company so i'm hoping to be able to implement that there as well there's a lot of stuff that you know could be used for and it's the kind of thing that could spread adoption even if retailers continue to be relatively slow at increasing adoption with actual terminals and stores so i think that's really cool um auto unlock i think it's really uh, going to be a fun thing it seems very clever the way that they're managing that with time of flight and so on uh, to measure proximity uh, for the apple watch to the macbook i don't do this a ton but you know my my macbook air has a has a passcode on it and so being able to just open that and have it automatically authenticate me and let me in would be great um you know i frequently mistype a letter or a number here or there and i have to try again so that will be a handy thing i think a lot of this stuff comes under the heading of convenience you know it's not going to change my world necessarily but it's just going to make things that much easier and i think that gets us to the broader set of complaints that people had about this wwdc and that they've had about ones in the past as well is that so much of what apple announced was incremental or you know even tiny um you know as far as conveniences go and yet these are all a big deal I, you know, Apple pays attention to those things. In fact, here's here's a good example of how of how deeply these little details matter to the company. Um, when Jay Blonick talked about the changes they made to fitness tracking for wheelchair users, mm. I mean that is like that is a quintessential Apple thing to do. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that has very little profit value. They do it because it just bugs them that that's that that doesn't work right for some of its users. And so they go through this relatively massive effort relative to the size, you know, the size of the problem as far as the number of, you know, Apple Watch wearers in the world that that are bound to wheelchairs. Right. I I mean, obviously huge for them, but but, uh, small Mm. as a subset of their customers. And yet Apple took it as seriously as they did that not only did they, um, not only did they, uh, go to the work to solve the problem, but they gave it stage time right. because it it illustrates who they are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think I think being able to open up your laptop and because your watch is nearby, why make somebody type a login? That's it's it's all in that same category, right? Right. It's right. it's it's the principles that guide the way they do things rather than the financial benefit. Yeah. No, that was interesting. I. I think it's worth just spending a minute or two right here at the end to just talk about the thing as a whole. I mean, we talked about the presentation, the structure, but I've seen people say, oh, there wasn't much there or this was very incremental or whatever. I was like, there were several really big things. I mean, if you include the App Store stuff from last week, if you include opening up not just Siri but iMessage and Maps, which could be significant over time. It wasn't something I'd really spent a lot of time thinking about, but there's some clear value there as well. Uh, if I think about the the total redesign of the lock screen uh, and the interactivity now of notifications on the lock screen and that kind of thing, 
um, you know, the Siri on the Mac. There's, there's just a, there was a lot of stuff. Um, and I, I can't quite understand the people that are saying, oh, there really wasn't much there. It was kind of boring. It wasn't, you know, it was too incremental. It's like there is a lot there. And, and from visual redesign to, to big new features to changes to business models for developers in particular, you know, the watch OS, I mean, the watch and their slogan around it is like a brand new watch. And, you know, if it works as well as it's advertised, it will absolutely change my attitude towards apps on the watch because I've basically given up on them because they load far too slowly. And if it works the way it's advertised and should do, uh, then it would be a really big deal. Um, you know, single sign on the TV is certainly helpful, would have been nice at the beginning. Uh, I've mostly signed into all those apps now, but it'll certainly make it easier going forward. Uh, having the Siri remote on the Apple on, on iOS devices will be helpful. There's just a lot there that's going to make life using these platforms better and uh, make create new opportunities for developers. And I actually felt like it was a fairly significant set of announcements. So uh, I've, you know, in talking to reporters who kind of, and I only had one or two actually make that point to me directly, but I've kind of pushed back on it because I felt like, that was missing the point. There was a lot there that was a big deal. So that was my take. I don't know what yours was. Yeah, I'm in agreement. I was actually blown away by the by the iOS stuff in particular. I mean, mm -hmm. tvOS, that was, that was pretty paltry. I mean, there, yeah. there were a few things that they improved that will make a big difference for a brief amount of time. I think the biggest change there was the one they didn't announce that the Siri remote is no longer mandatory for game right. developers but yep. uh we'll see how that plays out but but i think as a whole it was it was huge and if you add up all of the convenience all of the time if you aggregate essentially the 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 day-to-day -day significance of everything apple announced it, it's huge mm -hmm. i think the problem yeah. is is there weren't apple didn't hit any home runs they hit base hits but they mm -hmm. hit one after another after another and this, you, right. you, you run up the score like crazy if you do that and i think that was the effect Right. But people like watching home runs. And yeah, so yeah. I think that's, you know, I think that's an analogy that kind of describes it. It was a it was, it was a it was a a two hour presentation where every batter got on base. <laughs> right. And yeah. so it kind of the aggregate effect is, oh, that was all neat, I guess. Yeah. Instead of sort uh -huh. of taking it as a whole and going, wow, that was that was an amazing performance. I, I think there were a lot of hard, sticky, but narrow problems that they fixed yeah and and the other thing i mean all the the platform stuff with maps iMessage and siri in particular the significance of that won't be realized until three to four months from now it'll yeah, be in absolutely. september when they're launching the iphone 7 and mm -hmm. they do their run through of the 10 things again and they pull up some developers right. on stage to show what they've done with maps or what they've done with mm -hmm. iMessage and then that's when everybody's going to go oh that's what that meant right so right no i agreed yeah i, I yeah, so I guess that does that make Tim Cook the Billy Bean of Apple? I don't know. Kind of <laughs> you the, know what? To, that to is send the Money Ball and Oakland A's. Kind oh of my Apple's gosh, that A's is such a great analogy, right? <laughs> I mean, that if, if any if there's anybody in the sports world that embodies Tim Cook, it's Billy Bean. Yeah. I mean, you've got the guy who used to be you know chief operations officer for the company now running yeah. it, and he's going to run it like a COO. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right well that's a good thought to end on we've had a couple of good things from you, from you in particular today we had fun is useful i like that and then tim cook is the billy bean of apple <laughs> all right well we'll wrap up there we're a little over our usual time but uh again we'll probably follow up with a little bit more on wwdc next week we hope you found this useful and you enjoyed it and we hope you'll join us again next week thanks <laughs>